Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I am the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up fam, Lucas here. I want to take a moment to announce a couple of things to all my new listeners on the podcast. Firstly, if you're looking to upgrade your brain function, whether that be through reducing brain fog, enhancing verbal fluency, improving confidence, motivation, drive, or even orgasm intensity, then check out my nootropics course, which can be found on my website at www.ergogenic.health. And you'll see at the top, it will say courses where you can use the discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. In addition, I also have a sleep optimization masterclass and a testosterone optimization course that can also be accessed on my website. Again, you can use the same discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today, I'm joined in with a fellow naturopathic physician, uh, Dr. Drew Timmermans, who's joining me in all the way from the US. So, Drew, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, Luke. I really appreciate it. Awesome. So, do you want to give my audience a bit of a background into, I guess, you know, your journey and how you came to study uh, you know, naturopathic medicine and, and pain management. Yeah, so um, I'll give you the abbreviated version. But uh, in in high school, I decided that I wanted to do medicine. Uh, at that time, I only knew about allopathic medicine, which is what most people think of when they think of a doctor. They think of an MD uh, in Canada, which is where I grew up. And then here in the States, they think of an MD or a DO. And uh, so that's what I originally set my sights on. I uh, did all my prereqs, all that type of stuff. I sat and wrote the MCAT twice um, and uh, applied to schools when I was done with my undergraduate degree uh, in kinesiology. And I didn't. Uh, I had uh, an interview at where I did my undergrad, but I didn't get accepted. And so I decided, okay, uh, this is you know it's a tough field to get into. I'm going to take the year off. I'll work as a personal trainer. Because uh, I enjoyed sports, you know, I was a track athlete, a whole bunch of stuff like that. And uh, I'll reapply the next year. Well, uh, during that time, I 
uh, one of my clients noticed that how excited I would get when you know I would talk about other clients who got off their blood pressure medication just because of the diet and exercise we were doing, or getting off cholesterol drugs because of the things we were doing. And she was like, "Hey, you know, you should really look into naturopathic medicine. I think you'd really, you know, uh, be interested in it." And I went online that night, uh, just kind of did a quick Google search, and immediately, like, it just it like it hits your chest so hard when like you realize like, "Holy shit, this is this is what I want to do for the rest of my life." It just like the frequency that it re- vibrates at is what like vibrates with you, and you're just like. That's it. That's the, it was the epitome of like what I believe health and medicine should be without ever actually vocalizing it. It vocalized it for me. Right. Mm. And I was just like, I, I can't, I don't want to become uh, an orthopedic surgeon anymore. I don't want to become a uh, cardiothoracic surgeon, which were kind of the two fields that I had uh, tossed around in my head for allopathic medicine. I was like, I'm going down this route. I don't know where it's going to lead me. Uh, I didn't even know about, you know, the stuff I do now, prolo, PRP, stem cell therapy. I didn't know it, but any of that, I was just like this, it's just this philosophy of what I'm doing. So, uh, uh, applied, had some interviews, uh, and then, uh, ended up making my way from Canada to Arizona, uh, mainly because of the gorgeous weather here. Um, and, uh, now called Arizona home. But then at, when I was here, I started getting exposed to the different uh, approaches that, uh, that were outside of surgery and cortisone injections for uh, chronic pain, more sports medicine, sports injuries, that type of stuff. Um, and what had really sparked my interest in exploring those options was uh, right before I moved out to Arizona, uh, I was in a really bad car accident in Canada, totaled my dad's car, um, and ended up uh, herniating a disc and was in some pretty bad, it actually ended my track and field career. Um, not like I was Olympic bound or anything, but it was, you know, it's what I did uh, as, my, as my passion. And, uh, and uh, so I was in chronic pain, low back pain for probably about two and a half years. Uh, and then I went to a conference in Florida that uh, exposed me to prolotherapy, PRP, uh, these different regenerative approaches and uh, I actually got a PRP treatment at this conference by a doctor who's based out of Texas. Um, and three months later, I was pain-free. Wow. And I had been trying everything other than steroids and surgery for two and a half years. And three months after this, I'm pain-free. And I'm like, again, holy shit, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Like, it just hit me. And so that is kind of what led me down this crazy, crazy path. Man, that's awesome. So I want to look, dive deeper into the whole um, this whole PRP because a, a lot of my listeners, this will be a brand new term to them. So do you want to Sweet. Yeah, break that down for them so they can learn more about what it is and, and how it works? Yeah. So uh, PRP is an acronym and it stands for platelet-rich plasma. So to break that word down, it is plasma, which is a part of your blood that we concentrate the platelets in. And so... Basically, the process is we take some whole blood from you, the, the person that we're going to treat. We spin that down in the centrifuge and we uh, separate out the plasma, which is the clear yellow portion where all your proteins are, that type of stuff. And then the hematocrit, which is where the red blood cells, hemoglobin, iron, all those things are. We separate those out and then we take the plasma and then we concentrate down that plasma even further, again, using a centrifuge. And we concentrate these little fragments of cells that are called platelets. Now, in our body, platelets are uh, important in our clotting cascade. And so when they see damage to an area, they release a whole bunch of growth factors that help that area to clot off and heal. So they're part of this first healing response in our body. Well, it turns out that if you take these platelets and you inject them into an area like a tendon, a ligament, a joint, around a nerve that is damaged, you can then create a new healing response. And so these platelets release these growth factors that start telling other cells in the area, hey, this is damaged, we need to fix it. And then it brings in a whole bunch of of other growth factors, cytokines, they can even recruit stem cells to the area. 
So that way we actually get some healing in the tissue that we injected into. And so if someone has a, a mild tear in a tendon, we can actually get that tendon to heal itself after a long period of time. Mm. We don't always see, you know, on an MRI that the tendon was torn and the tendon is no longer torn. Sometimes that tear still remains. But what we're starting to see uh, with the research, especially over the last kind of four to five years, is that we may not be seeing true, uh, okay, this large tear is now all of a sudden perfect and gone and it's like it never happened, but the pain is gone. And we're able to help these tears or this arthritis not be as painful and as inflamed uh, instead of having to use uh, steroid injections and uh, surgery. Mm. So with the, um, with the research on PRP, did it originate based on like healing or supporting a pain itself? Or was, was there another sort of modality it was useful? So uh, the PRP research actually originally came from the dental field. Right. They were looking at different ways to help uh, implants and surgeries to do better. Um, and they were the ones who, who really did. And actually, if I uh, remember correctly, because almost everything kind of starts in the veterinary field first, right? It all started kind of, you know, with the animals. Um, but in terms of humans, I think it was, it was the dentist that really kind of took the idea of uh, taking blood, taking these platelets and injecting them in with their sur- their dental surgeries to try and help uh, help healing. Mm. Interesting. One thing that um one thing that popped up as you were discussing like the functions of platelets, it, it sort of made me wonder like what happens when because obviously most people get a routine blood check done and oftentimes their platelet count will come up. And, you know, there was a specific range. I don't know, our reference range is a little bit different here. But just out of curiosity, can you tell anything about a patient's uh, mm, uh, ability to trigger this this healing cascade by their blood test value, like their platelet count? Not really, no. Uh, we do uh, screening blood tests like that to make sure somebody doesn't have really low platelets, mm. uh, which could indicate there's you know something deeper going on or really high platelets, which could indicate a lot of inflammation or some other pathological condition. Uh, but we can't really get a sense of uh, how well the platelet is functioning based off of how many there are. Right. Those are uh, two slightly different things, unfortunately. Right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So... In terms of the um, administration, you mentioned, so was it injection and like how frequent would the treatment typical, typically be? Yeah, so um, uh, the, this is the way that I approach all of these injections, whether it's prolotherapy, which is uh, the same injection as PRP, we just use dextrose or sugar in the syringe instead of PRP or stem cells, which we get from uh, fat tissue or bone marrow tissue. The, the concept is still the same. We do our injection, and then we actually watch the healing process in this patient. And what will happen is most patients will get a little bit worse right afterwards. They'll have what we call a small flare, which is normal. I just put a needle and injected some stuff into an area that is painful and damaged. Your body's going to mount a normal response, which is to inflame the area. um, And that inflammation makes it temporarily worse. So they get a little bit worse. But then they start to heal and they start to get better. And that continues and continues. And at some point, it plateaus. Now, this plateau might be that they are 20% better. It might be 50% better. It might be 100% better. But at some point, you have to plateau. You can't heal forever, right? When the patient plateaus, that's when we discuss, hey, should we do another one, right? If they are 90% better, probably don't need to do another one because they're 90% better and they don't really notice uh, much of their pain uh, except usually in extreme situations. Um, Or do we repeat the treatment? So let's say patient gets 40 to 50% better. That's a great indication for, okay, what we did worked. Let's do it again. Um, Or maybe let's say they got only 25% better, which means that it worked, but it wasn't strong enough so we could either repeat what we just did or we step up the strength. So that's where we might move from a PRP to a stem cell therapy or move from a prolotherapy to a PRP. 
Now, with each of these therapies, prolotherapy, PRP, and stem cell therapy, the, the strength of them increases in that order. So prolotherapy is the weakest and stem cell therapy is the strongest. Because of that, healing lasts over a different period of time for each of them because more healing generally happens in these. And so most patients uh, who get prolotherapy, we're usually doing repeat treatments about every six weeks. PRP is usually about every three months. And then stem cell therapy, if we have to repeat it, it's usually not for at least a year. Right. Cool. I want to, I really want to delve into more on the, um, on the stem cell therapy, because again, a brand new term. I know a lot of my listeners will be brand new. Um, so I like it. yeah, let's break that one down. So, um, I'll talk, I don't know the, uh, the laws around stem cells where, where you're at. Uh, and so I'll, I'll speak in terms of, of here in the U S um, and then we can maybe, uh, chat more about that. But so here in the U.S., there are, uh, there are two main ways that you can uh, get a live stem cell treatment. And that is always from a patient, which is uh, the term for that is called autologous, which means it comes from that same person. And so if I went to go get a stem cell procedure, the stem cells have to come from me. There's currently no FDA-approved uh, drugs or uh, biological drugs that contain live stem cells. And so you can't go to somewhere to a clinic and they can't like pull stem cells like off of a shelf and give them to you. Now there are some companies that claim they have stem cells in a vial, but that's a huge violation of the FDA and they're using loopholes to get around this. Uh, and a lot of that will be changing soon. And a lot of companies have actually been shut down by the FDA because of that. So a stem cell to, to step even one step further back a stem cell is a generalized term for a cell that has the ability to self-replicate over and over and over again throughout your lifetime. Um, and it can also differentiate into a different cell. So a mesenchymal stem cell, for example, which is the primary cell that we use or that we want to use, uh, can become a tendon cell. It can become a, uh, a bone cell. It can become a ligament cell. It can become a cartilage cell. Um, and so it, the mesenchymal stem cell kind of sticks within the musculoskeletal region. And so the procedures that we do here is we either do a bone marrow aspiration or we do a liposuction procedure. Both of those procedures can collect either bone marrow or adipose tissue. Both of those are rich in stem cells. We can then process those, uh, the bone marrow or the adipose in order to try and concentrate those stem cells so that we can inject them back into a, again, a rotator cuff tear, a knee that has osteoarthritis, uh, around a disc that has degenerative disc disease, around a nerve that's not healing properly, all of these different tissues. And that stem cell, this is the most fascinating thing in the world to me. That stem cell goes in and it does several things. One, it starts to orchestrate all the cells around it to say, hey guys, you are not doing your job at healing. You guys need to start healing. That's the first thing it can do. The second thing it can do is it can, um, it can actually give its mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell, it can give its mitochondria to a damaged cell that has a dying mitochondria, which is like, when that research came out about three, four years ago, like that was mind-blowing. Yeah. Um, and then most recently, there was another study that just came out in this like past week where they showed that um, one of the other ways that stem cells can be beneficial is when the stem cell gets eaten by our immune system, which is it, that happens, um, it, it reprograms the immune cell to be less inflammatory, which is super, super fascinating. So we can get an immune modulation response there. And then lastly the stem cell can turn into a new cell. So for example, if we inject this, uh, the stem cell into the knee joint, it can integrate into the cartilage and stay there. Now that's not, most people think that's what happens most of the time. That's a really, really tiny percent of the time, but it does happen. Mm, it's fascinating, man. Yeah. Jeez. So I'm curious to know, like with stem cells, do we have a... I'm trying to think back to, you know, back to high school. I know we briefly touched on it in biology, but do we have a, a finite 
production and or do it does it decline with age so um the current uh the current research shows that in the bone marrow that we do get a reduction in stem cells over time and um and that that's twofold one is uh that it happens from a peripheral to central uh direction so when we're really really young we have red bone marrow in our ankles that is you know really robust has lots of stem cells but as we age that red marrow actually turns to fat it turns to fatty marrow and so obviously the, the number of bone marrow stem cells goes down because of that um and so as we age we can have a decrease in the number of, of bone marrow stem cells Current research for adipose shows that we actually don't get a decrease in our stem cell count uh, in the adipose tissue as we age. Now, as we age, our stem cells, all of our stem cells will lose what we call stemness, which means like their strength of, of being a stem cell. So, you know, you can have like a superstar, rock star stem cell that like always does a job, does it super fast, like no errors. And then you can have like kind of the kid in the back of the class that just like doesn't pay attention. He's still there. He still gets his work done, but he does it really slow. Like we can have a range in that. And as we age, we go from rock star stem cells to kind of like kid in the back of the class stem cells. Yeah. And so, uh, so that's one of the changes that, that we can see with age. Yeah. Wow. And uh, you also mentioned, this was quite surprising, and you sort of said this is fairly new research, that um, some of these stem cells have the ability to reprogram immune cells. So I'm curious mm-hmm. to know whether that has any sort of implications in like autoimmune diseases at all. It does. And so um, if you look outside the U.S. at research where they can take umbilical cord stem cells, so from, you know, donated placentas, um, and they do uh, trials for like giving an IV infusion of stem cells for patients with autoimmune disease. There is, we're starting to see some really promising results on a reduction in immune sta- uh, autoimmune status or the amount of antibodies a patient might have. And so I, I truly think that there is a huge area for that. Now, there are obviously big regulatory uh, hurdles that have to be overcome here in the U.S. in order to start seeing that happen. Um, and, you know, uh, it, it's just the way that, you know, uh, the pharmaceutical land is run in, in this country, and it is what it is. Uh, but it is really fascinating to see uh, other countries really stepping up and doing more research on intravenous treatments for uh, autoimmune conditions, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, even things like multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease. Um, and it's not, stem cells are not the miracle drug that everybody wants them to be, but they are definitely a new powerful way that uh, I think could bring a lot of help to people who have been suffering for a really long time. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm excited to yeah see more research in, in, that, in that realm because that I think is... Uh, I mean, as you know, like as a naturopath, we're always coming back to addressing the gut and then how, you know, leaky gut or intestinal permeability is leading to autoimmune diseases. And it's so common now, like we're seeing autoimmune right. disease across. A lot of it. I'm sure you'd be seeing a, a lot of it. Um, but I want to I wanna dive deeper into some of the other modalities that you might stack in with like PRP and things like that. I know you've spoken about uh, BPC one five seven. I'm also yep. a mass, massive fan uh, yep. of that of that peptide. What other what other modalities have you sort of explored? So, um, I so the biggest things for me on uh, like how do we optimize our patients for you know the stem cell treatment that we're doing or the PRP treatment, whatever it is. Um, it, it all comes back to kind of like what are, what are the basics of health, right? It's it's how can we get people to sleep better, move more, uh, to eat better, drink more water, have more social connections, have a better uh, you know um, stress management practice, like all these basic things. And so we've got tools, you know, to help with all that stuff. The uh, the icing on the cake that I call it. That's where we start coming in with like doing some NAD IVs or we're doing peptides like BPC 
uh, Thymosin Beta 4. Uh, those are probably the two biggest ones that I'm using right now for, uh, for musculoskeletal healing. Um, and then probably third is the GHKCU, which can help with collagen synthesis. Um, uh, and then uh, uh, with the NAD, you know, we also have other uh, IV protocols that we can do that are going to be, you know, high dose vitamin C, you know, that we're going to be really trying to increase that vitamin C status to help with collagen synthesis, um, low level laser, uh, you know, just little things here and there that I think, uh, you know, help to uh, really round out a treatment. But I, I'm almost kind of glossing over them because I'm just so bullish on like people just, you, you need to sleep better. You need to exercise more. You need to improve the quality of food that you're eating, decrease the junk food that you're eating, drink more water. Like those things I think are going to move the needle like this much. And then the peptides and everything else moves it like this much, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. It, it, it does come back to those, you know, those naturopathic tenants that we, you know, that we talk about. Um, yeah. And yeah, the body seeing is viewing the body as like a holistic system where each, you know, if there's one lagging organ system or if there's one lagging, you know, a single nutrient deficiency that, you know, may offset or skew some other system. Um, so it's definitely important there, but, um, you spoke about, I want to sort of dive deeper into the NAD, uh, IV NAD, cause, uh, there is a, a fairly new, uh, I don't know if you've heard anyone talk about it. It's called five amino one MQ. It's, uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Do, yeah. Do you want to, cause I, so yeah. I, I don't have a lot of experience with it. And the reason is as soon as I started getting really excited because uh, I usually, uh, when a newer peptide comes out, um, I usually spend probably about three to six months researching it, talking with people, kind of really getting to know it before I just jump and start using it. And then usually I use it on myself first before I, you know, I, I uh, start using it with patients. Um, so I really started getting uh, excited with the the five amino one Q, and and then the FDA took it away. And so I don't have access to it. So I, I actually don't have any clinical experience with it. Um, but I was really fascinated with its abilities to uh, help improve endogenous NAD levels through scavenging systems, which I think, you know, just uh, makes a, a whole bunch of sense. Mm, yeah. I mean, I had, a, I had a really good chat with um, Ryan Smith from Taylor. Oh, Man. yeah. Yeah. Uh, still waiting on my sample, Ryan, just putting it out there. Uh, <laughs> uh, personally, yeah. I mean, I'm looking forward to experimenting on myself because I heard, I don't know if you heard his story about his vertical jump. Massive. No, I, I didn't hear that. It, it increased his vertical jump by like six inches in like two weeks or something ridiculous. Oh, wow. And he lost crazy. A, a body, a lot, a lot of body fat. So I was like, yeah, this is, this is cool stuff. If, if Ryan's talking about it, has used it. Uh, yeah. Have you looked much into the uh, senolytic compounds? Uh, like epitalon, like the um, immune ones, epitalon? No, uh, more like the uh, rapamycin or the other yeah. rapalogs, uh, desatinib, and then there's a few up-and-coming ones uh, in the drug pipeline. Have you looked at those much at all? No, the only one that I've actually sort of experimented with is metformin, although not really a, yeah. uh, you know, I, I've got a... Do you want to, do you want, I actually would love to hear your thoughts on metformin. So, um, how do I frame this up? Uh, I think, so uh, it is very clear that it is a mitochondrial poison. Um, and a lot of people love to hang their hat on, oh, that must make it terrible for you. You know, it's a mitochondrial poison. Um, but uh, I think that that's one of the reasons why it's beneficial because it's hormesis. It's, hey, here's a mild stress on the system um, and let's have your body rebound, recover from it. And, you know, we can see, uh, see some improvements. Um, I'm still waiting for uh, better data on what happens in the healthy population. Because we know that metformin uh, reduces mTOR expression, which uh, can be a good thing. Uh, you know, if uh, you're going to use that for potentially a... Uh, a cancer or oncological purpose. Um, but 
what about the person who uh, is trying to put on muscle mass? What, what about the person who's trying to maintain muscle mass as they are going through the aging process and they're otherwise metabolically healthy? Um, I think the research is pretty clear at this point that if you are metabolically deranged, so if you have type 2 diabetes, that being on metformin is a very smart anti-aging move. It seems to decrease risk of cancer and uh, improve longevity. But I, what we don't know yet, and I'm still unclear on, and actually why I stopped using metformin probably about a year ago, is what happens when you are metabolically healthy and then you take metformin. Right, compared to being metabolically unhealthy and taking metformin. And so because of that, I, uh, I haven't used it in a while, but was using it for a bit. Um, but I think it is a, uh, a fascinating approach in, uh, in that certain patient population, which is you know, the pre-diabetics or the type 2 diabetics, things like that. Yeah, yeah. My, my stance is very, very similar to yours, although there are some other aspects of metformin that I personally... I personally like the one that really caught my attention was its ability to uh, increase 11 beta HSD. So it's actually helping mm. resynthesize cortisol. So I'm like, oh, I'm looking at, you know, I'm looking at my own labs and how flatlined my cortisol response is and, um, yep. you know, too far across on the cortisone side and not enough cortisol. Yeah. Um, so I thought it'd be a cool, like, modality to explore. Um, do you spend much time like with? It. Do you spend much time with like adrenal fatigue or like the, the typical like adrenal adrenally exhausted patient at all? Or um, I used to. So uh, probably about uh, nine months ago, I uh, made the uh, professional decision to uh, really shift my practice to like ninety to ninety five percent regenerative injection based. So uh, in order to work with me, a patient needs to be. Uh, at a place in their uh, treatment program or in their life where they're ready for regenerative injection therapies. Mm. Um, but prior to that, when I was still primarily, I was mainly taking hormone patients and uh, and pain patients, whether or not they were going to do injections. Uh, yeah, I worked with a lot of patients who, uh, you know, have some form of chronic fatigue, which is, you know, just a blanket statement, but, you know, who have some form of adrenal insufficiency where, you know, you run a serum cortisol test and it's basically bottomed out and you do a 24-hour cortisol and it's lower end of the range, right? It's nothing that an endocrinologist, you know, would say that they, you know, have a pathological disease or that they have Addison's, but it's like, it's borderline, you know? And so, uh, yeah, I used to work a lot with those patients, but uh, as of right now, my wife, who uh, is in the practice with me, uh, she works on that stuff with the patients, even if it's a pain patient that's seeing me for injections, she will work on them with the adrenals, with hormones, with all that stuff, gut health, and then I'll step in and do what I'm really good at, which is putting needles in people. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Drew, I want to sort of look at some of the... because. Um, you know, you've spoken about how they work, some of their functions, some of the, you know, basic protocols, but I want to hear more about some, let's look at like your number one sort of maybe like success story or something crazy that you've seen with one of your, one of your patients. What have you seen that's been like mind blowing? Um, so uh, I, I have a BPC story that I'll, I'll set off to the side, but remind me to tell you it because it is the most insane thing I've ever seen uh, with BPC in my life. Um, I'm trying to think of which story to go with. Um, so I usually, I usually tell this story and I'm trying to think of I have a different one so I can try and give a different perspective. Um, so probably the, uh, the craziest story that I've ever, uh, had with patients is I was actually, uh, in med school at this time. And uh, I had just started learning how to do a, a treatment called perineural injection therapy, which is uh, basically it's subcutaneous injection. So the needle is only half inch long, but we're injecting 5% dextrose, uh, so very low concentration sugar. And we're injecting it around the areas where the peripheral nerves uh, might pick it up. And it helps to calm down uh, neurogenic inflammation or pain that is coming from nerves. 
So this guy came in and he had uh, this shoulder pain that started, um, I think it was probably about two or three weeks prior. And he was, he was in bed and he had turned and hit his partner's head with his arm. And that caused him this immediate, like severe pain in his shoulder. Well, <clears throat> he went through the you know whole workup on the allopathic side. He went, he got an x-ray, that was fine. He got an MRI, there was nothing wrong there. Doctors couldn't figure it out. And they were just like, well, we don't know what to say. It'll just, maybe it'll go away. Um, and so he ended up coming over to see us. And so uh, our physical exam showed us or um, suggested to us, I should say, that he was suffering from an axillary nerve injury. So in this event where he hit his partner's head, he had injured his axillary nerve, which is the main nerve that innervates the shoulder, okay? There's a motor branch, obviously the axillary nerve proper that allows you to do like pressing movements and things like that with the deltoid. And then there is a sensory branch that comes off called the superior brachial cutaneous nerve. We did one treatment of subcutaneous injections. So again, the needle is this long of perineural all along this guy's shoulder, uh, probably about 10 spots. One treatment and he was pain-free, like 100% improvement. And <clears throat> the longest we followed up with him was about a year and it never come back. Jeez. So it was like, that was just, I mean, absolutely uh, phenomenal. On a regular basis though, I mean, it's not rare for, it's actually common for us to, you know, do a PRP injection with patients and have them be, you know, 80% better after three months. And they've been through, they've had surgery, they've had steroid injections. Like people will sometimes criticize and say, oh, that's anecdotal. Oh, it was the placebo effect. And yeah, you know, maybe some of it is, but if somebody gets a steroid injection and they don't get better and then they get another injection and just what's in the syringe is different. Maybe it's not placebo, you know? So, but my BPC story. Yeah, yeah. So I had this I had this patient who, super awesome dude, we were uh, doing some PRP for, uh, we had done his shoulder. We did one treatment uh, at this point, it was about a year and a half prior to this. He was 95% better, uh, but he was a big lifter. And so he was like, hey, you know, um, I've still got a, a tiny twinge of pain, you know, when I'm like maxi on my bench press. He's like, should I try this BPC? I was just like, yeah, you know, I don't think it's worth the money to do a PRP procedure, so let's try the BPC. So he starts on the BPC. I see him back in four weeks, and he says to me, he goes, uh, I go, how's the shoulder? He's like, oh, yeah, pain's gone. He's like, but that's not the crazy part. He had, so uh, probably about seven years, I think it was seven years, seven years prior to this, he dropped a weight in the gym on his big toe. From that, he got a fungal infection, okay? He had tried everything under the sun to treat this fungal infections. Everything from, uh, everything that the, you know, the MD doctor would give him, all the, you know, topical and oral antifungal medications. He tried everything natural. The only thing that kind of like helped it to not like get crazy was tea tree oil. But he still always had the infection. I didn't know about this infection, by the way. Until he came in and said, yeah, about three weeks after taking the BPC, my toenail fungal infection of seven years was gone. <laughs> I'm like, that's crazy. What? Like, it was just, I was like, to this day, I'm still mind blown. And to this day, that fungal infection is still gone. That is unreal, man. But like that, I'm just trying to think, like, I was just trying to, as you were describing that, I was like, first of all, there's, there is no research on BPC and fungal infections, number one. No. Number two, or, or infections in general. Yeah. So, what what do you think is like? Let's hypothesize the potential mechanism there. Like, what do you think? Like, what is happening? So, um, I have seen this in a few other patients where some infection type stuff has resolved. So, I I'm curious if there is an indirect. Uh, I don't think. I don't know. I don't know, and I can't even speculate. Is this a direct? antimicrobial effect or is this uh, is there some effect on the immune system mm. right where the immune system is now um restored to i don't want to say boosted because i mean a boosted immune system is a very very bad bad thing right but 
if somebody's a little suboptimal in one part of their immune system, maybe it helps with that and they are better their body is now better able to address an infection that it couldn't before. Yeah. Um, you know, that's kind of I don't know which one of those things it is, but yeah. I I've, I've seen it on a few other patients as well where we've started them for uh, a musculoskeletal or a gut condition and there's been a few infectious things that have kind of cleared up and it just I think I don't think it's a strong like I would never prescribe it for an infection yeah. clearly but like it's it's interesting like there there should be research on it yeah yeah I mean I'm I'm just thinking back to my experience with BPC I was using it orally and I still have some um, and I've got a product on my site of a reliable. There's one of my good pals here is manufacturing uh, BPC. Nice. He's also included a um, a novel peptide. Have you heard of lorazotide acetate for leaky gut? Um, I think I might have read a somebody's blog post about a new leaky gut peptide. I was like, ooh, I like leaky gut peptides. Uh, but then couldn't find it anywhere here in the U.S., so I yeah. just it fell off. Yeah, yeah, that that sort of that was there for a while. But um, yeah, with the BPC orally, like I took it, you know, I had a torn meniscus for yeah. two two years, and that literally just sealed it up after two weeks. Like nice. you know, fully functional, zero pain. You know, was I able to squat again. It's like just amazing, amazing. Um, Drew, I want to go back to, so with the PRP, I had a question um, related to more about, so what happens, let's say somebody does get the injection, is it like a day procedure? And then what, what else do they have to do like the next week or so? Yeah, so um, the injections for most things usually only take about half an hour to 45 minutes. Um, some of our longer cases, you know, if we're treating the spine plus a knee and a shoulder, you know, that might be an hour and a half to two hours uh, for the case. But most cases are about 30 to 45 minutes. Um, uh, generally, we most of our patients are either in physical therapy or we recommended them to be in physical therapy, uh, which we, they will usually start about a week after the procedure. Again, um, these injections are not just magic injections where you just do the injection and you get to go back to you know, not moving well, not exercising, all that stuff, right? Uh, it's not like, it's like the people who think you can drink one green smoothie and then all of a sudden your life is is changed and, but you can keep eating, you know, fast food and junk food, but yeah, that one green smoothie, it's like good, you know? Um, and so uh, so usually we're, we're really encouraging them to get in with a good therapist. We've got some good referrals out here for reintegration, right? We just did an injection that is hopefully going to help tissues to start to heal, nerves to start to function better and be in less pain, which allows muscles to move better. And a lot of these patients have been in chronic pain for so long. And so their brain has also stopped really paying attention and caring about that area. You know, movement has been shut down. Uh, brains are afraid to get into certain uh, movement patterns or ranges because of that chronic pain. And so, uh, so we really encourage the, the physical therapy uh, component of it. Most patients, again, they're going to be sore for probably about two to three days after the procedure. So usually we just tell them, hey, you know, take it easy. Don't go crazy. Don't go try to plan a 10-mile hike tomorrow type deal. Uh, and then most patients are back to, you know, uh, most of them don't have to take, off, take time off work or anything like that because they're still able to uh, do their job, obviously, unless it's a very physically demanding job, then they might take a day or two off. Um, but yeah, it's we just kind of uh, help them to uh, reintegrate those movement patterns and obviously coach them through the nutritional sleep, all the other stuff that we're focusing on. Yeah, awesome, awesome. You did mention um, that if somebody, because I'm just thinking now, 40% of my listeners are from the US. Um, so oh, nice. if they wanted to, you know, learn more about potentially getting treatment for themselves or, or something like that, can they go to somewhere on your website to learn more? Or Yeah, so we've got information on the website about the different injection services that we provide and things like that. I put out a ton of content across all major platforms. So 
you know, uh, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. Mm. Um, so a lot of content there where I'm just trying to educate people on, you know, these different therapies, uh, different options, you know, some motivational stuff because people in chronic pain, you know, really sometimes struggle with depression and things like that. Um, and then from there, you know, if somebody's interested in working one-on-one with me, uh, then I do a, f- a free 15-minute screening call. Uh, basically, it's just like a, you know, a quick touch base for someone to say, hey, you know, this is what I've got going on. I've got this diagnosis. It hurts when I do this. And I say, yeah, it sounds like this is something that I could help with. And then we move forward with uh, making an appointment. Yeah, awesome. We'll make sure, yeah. for those listening in, we'll make sure to have those linked uh, in the show notes so you guys can access them. Uh, but Drew, I've got one last question and that is yep. related to where you see the future research lying for um, PRP therapy. Uh, I'll answer this two ways. Uh, first way is I'll answer it where I think it's going. Um, and where I think it's going is uh, they're going to start taking all of the uh, major, uh, all the major pathological diseases that uh, cost a lot of money here in the U.S. So knee osteoarthritis. I think they'll continue doing more research on knee osteoarthritis, on degenerative disc disease, on uh, on stenosis uh, in the spine, on uh, on cervicogenic headaches. Like I think they will start to uh, basically apply. Okay, these things did well with steroids, and we've got data to show that this is how steroids uh, do for this patient population. Now let's just compare this to PRP. That's where I think the clinical research is going to go. And the benchtop research is obviously going to continue on with, you know, more on how exactly is this PRP truly working? Because even though, you know, I talked about how it works, like there's still so much about these molecular pathways that we don't even understand or don't even know exist, right? So that's where I think it's going to go where I wanted to go because I think all that research is off. Like, I don't think they, I don't think they get it to the point that they need to. So, and the reason I say this is is I'll back up and just talk about knee osteoarthritis for a second. So uh, it's very common for someone to get it, to have knee pain. They go to their doctor and they get an x-ray or an MRI. Usually it's an x-ray, then an MRI. And they are diagnosed with knee osteoarthritis. And they are told your your pain is due to osteoarthritis of the knee. So they now have this label of osteoarthritis of the knee. Then they get the treatments for knee osteoarthritis, right? Whether that's a steroid injection in the knee or a hyaluronic acid injection in the knee. Um, maybe in the future, if PRP is approved, a PRP injection in the knee um, or a knee replacement, whether that's partial or full. The problem is that... This patient who has this diagnosis of knee osteoarthritis, their pain might not be coming from inside the joint. Their pain might not be coming from the cartilage, the meniscus, the subchondral bone. They might have pain from something outside the joint. So if you've got a pathological condition on imaging inside the joint, but your pain is out here outside the joint in a nerve and a tendon and a ligament. And all you do is pound treatments at this. It's going to do almost nothing for this. Mm. And so that's why I think a lot of the research is struggling to show a positive benefit in certain conditions with these therapies because they're missing the point. You have to, they're, they're not properly screening these patients for you know, having the pain generator be inside the knee joint or figuring out what is going on outside the knee joint. That's why, like at our clinic, for example, um, every single patient, even though they have knee pain, every single knee pain patient to date has, for better or worse, they've had a different treatment. Because some people, their pain is coming from inside the knee joint and the fat pad and the infrapatellar branch of the saphenous nerve. The next patient might just be the medial collateral ligament. The next patient might be the coronary ligaments that attach the meniscus onto the tibial plateau. The next patient might be the cartilage for sure. The next patient might be something completely different. Like 
everybody, even though they have knee pain and a diagnosis of knee osteoarthritis, their pain is made up of different structures. And that is where I wish the research would go. I wish the research would step back to better diagnostic skills with physical exams, not so much imaging, and then apply these therapies, you know, comparing steroids to PRP or PRP to physical therapy or whatever it is. That's where I wish the research would go. Wow. Yeah, well, well summarized, man. That's definitely one thing about what you do is you just so, so well at, um, you do such a good job at explaining things from like these physiological pathways and explaining these modalities and therapies. I think that's why you're really starting to, you know, you're an authority figure in this space. And, you know, that is exactly why, man. I just, yeah, I could, could listen to this stuff all day. If I, had <laughs> I could talk about it all day, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome, man. It's awesome. Well, um, Drew, that, that comes to the end of the, uh, the, uh, the podcast. What I'll do is for my listeners, I'll give them a chance to connect to all your socials, you know, your IG, uh, your website. If they want to learn more about some of the therapies we spoke about, I'm sure you've got plenty of like blogs and podcasts, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say a massive thanks for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I know it was, it was long overdue, but I appreciate it. Yeah. All righty, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. And I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.